In his classic book on holiness, J.C. Ryle says this, the man who is content to sit ignorantly by his own fireside, wrapped up in his own private affairs, and has no public eye for what is going on in the church and the world, is a miserable patriot and a poor style of Christian. Well, it's because I agree with Ryle that I'm standing here before you today. I believe that we have serious issues going on in our world, in this nation particularly, and in Christian churches. I believe in the devil. He's a wicked, powerful being who together with his demons operate as principalities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces that work evil from heavenly places. I believe that he has specific goals and designs according to 2 Corinthians 2.11, that he intends to wreak havoc upon the people of God by mimicking and corrupting the work of the gospel. I further believe that we're living at a time in the West when the devil and his minions have been particularly effective in carrying out their designs by seeding the culture with deadly, damnable ideas that have been wrapped in deceptive packaging that look like love and compassion. With Paul, I am afraid that just as the devil deceived Eve by his cunning, that the thoughts of many Christians in our own day are in danger of being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And we shouldn't wonder that this would be the case when we've been warned that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore, his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So if we believe the word, we should not be taken off guard when we see these things happening around us. But brothers and sisters, this is what the church of Jesus Christ is always up against. We are always engaged in spiritual warfare. There are forces of darkness always arrayed against us. And it is against these forces that we have been called to stand and contend. If we forget about them or fail to take seriously what the Bible says about this spiritual warfare, we will be easily led astray and be derelict in our duty to stand, for, stand firm in both the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Kevin Van Hooser has wisely noted that pastors and churches today must particularly brace ourselves for spiritual warfare. For, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, matters in motion, but against isms, against the powers that seek to name and control reality. And that is precisely why this conference today is being held. These sessions are seeking to address godless ideologies that have spread throughout Western civilization in recent years and have done so with a vengeance and with their agenda to name and control reality. In other words, they're telling us what we are supposed to see and they're naming it and defining it for us and then demanding that we reorder our lives on the basis of this supposed reality. The foremost ism that Christians in the West are facing today is cultural Marxism. This is an adaptation of classical Marxism, 
taking it from an economic theory into a cultural and social one. Cultural Marxism looks at classical Marxism and sees the categories and then rearranges them to fit the contemporary context. Classical Marxism saw class conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, or the haves and the have-nots. Cultural Marxism views such conflict as between the oppressed and the oppressors, between those with privilege and those without it. The working class has been replaced by minorities, and majority groups are defined as privileged or oppressive. Minority groups are regarded as underprivileged and oppressed. So what this means is that whites, men, heterosexuals, and cisgenders, that is, those who agree with the biological sex with which they were born, they, ad they identify with it, all these are majority groups and therefore are inherently oppressive. Those who do not fit into such groups are minorities and are by definition in the cultural Marxist scheme oppressed. The agenda of this ism is to see the overthrow of these oppressive groups and the structures that keep them in power. And they do it all in the name of love and compassion for the oppressed. This ideology is on full display in our political system in this nation. It's also on display in the academic community on the college and university campuses across the nation. It is seen in everything from the innocent sounding diversity departments that are multiplying now into a multi-billion dollar industry to the violent silencing of those heretics who dare to question its orthodoxy. The worldview to which this ideology has given rise has rapidly swept across our culture such that it is on its way to becoming the predominant worldview of the younger generations. In other words, the Judeo-Christian worldview which the older generations in our culture grew up with is long gone. While pollsters have tried to warn us about this over the last several years, they have miscalculated what has arisen in the place of this passing away Judeo-Christian worldview. Researchers have told us for years about the rapid rise of the nuns. And that's not an order of Catholic women. That's N-O-N-E-S. It's what is put down when you're asked what your religious preference is. And over the last 10 years, we have seen more and more in our culture, check the box, none. In December 10th, 2018, there was an article in Religion News that claims that the nuns now comprise 35% of the American population. But whenever you break that down to those that are 45 and under, that percentage creeps much closer to 50%. Most have interpreted this as an increase in the secularization of America. But I believe that that is a mistaken analysis. What we are witnessing is the rapid rise, not of secularization, but of a new religion. We are seeing the emergence of paganism here in our nation. As David French wrote last year in the National Review, it was foolish for anyone to believe that a less Christian America would 
be a less religious America. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, God put eternity in man's heart. Traditional Christianity and Judaism aren't just being removed from American life, they are being replaced. If Christians do not wake up and realize what is happening, brothers and sisters, we will be ill-prepared to contend for the gospel and defend that gospel in this pivotal cultural moment. So we must resist the temptations of both liberalism and pietism. That is, we must neither uncritically buy into the agenda of cultural Marxism, embracing its presuppositions and critical theories and assessments, which liberalism has tended to do. Nor, however, can we afford to ignore it and dismiss it as something that is insignificant that is happening. As long as we're left alone to preach the gospel, then we're just going to let things continue on unabated. Rather, we must identify this new religion We must expose it, see it as an all-out assault on biblical Christianity. We must refute it and accurately teach God's word and proclaim the simplicity and fullness that is in Christ in order to do so. In this new religion spawned by cultural Marxism, orthodoxy is political correctness. So that you must toe the line in what you say and even in what you think or be branded a heretic. Holiness is accrued by the number of victim statuses that you can claim, as Josh just explained, with intersectionality. Or if you're so sinful that you don't have any or many such victim statuses to claim, then your pursuit of holiness is limited to recognizing the intersecting levels of oppressions and honoring those to whom they apply. In this new religion, Conversion or being born again is becoming awakened to cultural Marxist categories of oppression or as it is sometimes called, being woke. Original sin is privilege, the most notable of which is white privilege, which is the subject that I've been assigned to address today. Let me give you a definition. Privilege is regarded as the original sin of those who are born into a society that is imbalanced in their favor so that they cannot help but internalize prejudices and assumptions that make them part of the oppressor class. So if you're born in a culture that puts you in the majority with privileges that you can take for granted, you cannot help but internalize those privileges and the prejudices that go with them and become a part of the oppressor class. So what that means for us is that if you are a heterosexual, cisgender, white Christian male who was born in a society that is majority white, male, heterosexual, and Christian, then you have multiple levels of privilege, which means that you have come into this world as a racist, sexist, homophobic, religious bigot. This is illustrated in the writings of Dr. Robin DiAngelo, 
who is a professor of education at the University of Washington and author of the book, White Fragility, Why It Is So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She explains white privilege by contending that to be born white in America is to be complicit in maintaining and promoting the ideology of white supremacy. Just by being born white. She explains by using herself as an example. She says, think about it like this. From the time I opened my eyes, I have been told that as a white person, I am superior to people of color. There's never been a space in which I have not been receiving that message. From what hospital I was allowed to be born in, to how my mother was treated by the staff, to who owned the hospital, to who cleaned the rooms and took out the garbage. We are born into a racial hierarchy and every interaction with media and, cultural, and culture conforms, confirms it. It confirms our sense that at a fundamental level, we are superior. And she goes on and writes that it is inevitable then that you just try to protect that and to preserve your white supremacy. It is this innate condition that has been dubbed white privilege. It has been done so by the promoters of cultural Marxism. And this language now is being employed in the name of racial reconciliation. It is seen as a system of unearned privileges and advantages that have been unjustly provided to white people simply because of their race. Now, traces of this way of thinking can be found in W.B. Du Bois in his 1930s writings, who spoke of a psychological wage that every white man in America earns each day simply by being white. The idea was taken up and refined with cultural Marxist uh, vigor in 1988 in an essay written by Peggy McIntosh. She's a radical feminist and senior research associate of Wellesley Centers for Women. She wrote an essay on male privilege and white privilege that was quickly released in a shorter form entitled, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. The essay is a personal account of McIntosh's perceptions of her own life a life that she says was a life of privilege. She attributes many of the benefits and advantages that she has to the fact that she is white. And then she extrapolates that to all white people. Her analogy is that all white people have a knapsack full of privileges that they enjoy, but which, quote, have been carefully, they've been carefully taught not to recognize. So thus this knapsack and the privileges that it contains are invisible to the people who carry it around. McIntosh lists 26 privileges that white people unthinkingly possess. And she includes in this list everything from being able to be in the company of people that look like you basically anytime you want to, to being able to purchase band-aids that are called flesh-colored and have them match the tone of your own skin. Well, what's the problem? with this ideology of white privilege? Well, there are many of them, but I want to give you just three. First, this racialized way of thinking about privilege completely ignores the inevitable realities of culture. Namely, it ignores that the majorities who create and lead cultures do so in ways that benefit them. And that shouldn't be surprising 
nor is it inherently evil. It certainly can become evil, but it's not inherently evil. Old Testament Israel developed a culture that provided a better way of life for devout Jews. So if you were a Gentile living in Israel, it would have been ludicrous for you to complain about Jewish privilege in the borders of Israel, even if you were a proselyte. But the same could be said about cultures today, about China, about Japan, about Zambia, or any other nation. Their cultures will naturally tend to benefit those who constitute the majorities in them. I know this doesn't apply exactly to the black-white divide in America, but it is a baseline for our thinking to recognize the way God has ordered the world. So if you were to go to Beijing as a non-Chinese speaker, and there you find people speaking Chinese all around you and things are ordered for the welfare of the Chinese, wouldn't it be crazy for you to feel like you're oppressed because of Chinese privilege? Well, white privilege as an ideology doesn't recognize these cultural realities. Secondly, the concept of white privilege is built on a fallacious argument that begs the question, That is, it assumes the very thing that it's used to prove, namely, that systemic racism exists. Yet there are many good reasons to reject that assumption altogether, not the least of which is that there are disparities in the world all over. Some are due to sin, but some are not. God has simply arranged his world in a way that does not fit the egalitarian spirit of the age. God has ordained hierarchies in the world. And if we will simply admit that, it will put us back closer to a biblical foundation from which to start thinking about some of these real problems that exist among races in the world and in the church. Men and women, he has created inherently different Some people are inherently stronger than others. Some people are inherently smarter than others. Some are born into Christian homes. Some into pagan homes. Some are taller. Some are shorter. And none of these disparities are always an advantage all the time. Sometimes those perceived advantages can become disadvantages. Trust me. As a taller person, it's no advantage to fly coach on Delta Airlines or to ride in the back seat of a Honda Civic. You don't feel privileged in such moments. Not every disparity between people of different races can be attributed to racial privilege or oppression. Furthermore, very often greater disparities can be found within a race than between races. So Tom Brady and I are both white. But that's about the extent of our commonalities. The disparities are much greater than what we have in common. So a failure to recognize these innate disparities in the world is another problem of this ideology of white privilege. It begs the question. A third problem with this concept is that once you accept it, on the terms of the cultural Marxism that spawned it, 
you place major obstacles between both white people and the gospel and black people and the gospel. And this should grieve anyone who loves the gospel and loves people. How does it work for white people? Well, the concept of white privilege places a stain on white people that can never finally be completely removed. It can only be partially lessened if they commit themselves to a lifelong cultural identity journey. That's what Daniel Hill calls it in his book, White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white. According to Hill, the process of this cultural identity journey is designed to transform white people from, quote, blindness to sight. And he has articulated seven stages of this journey. There's encounter, where you're confronted with your white privilege. There's denial, which he says most white people inevitably do. Disorientation, when you begin to wonder what's going on, have I really been seeing the world wrong? Shame, when you realize I should be ashamed for the pigmentation of my skin and what that means. Self-righteousness, because now you think you've got it and you understand things. Awakening, where you finally come to terms and you realize that you've got all this privilege that you just need to check and set aside, and then active participation. Those who cannot or will not stay on this journey are diagnosed with white fragility. And they will remain unawakened and enslaved to their privilege until they consciously, quote, check their privilege, by which is meant repent and get back on the pathway to awakening. So do you see what this does to people who buy into it, who accept it? On the one hand, it relegates the white person who rejects white privilege as an ideology to be helplessly lost in his white supremacy. So to reject it is to be tagged with somebody who's just fallen into white fragility and cannot handle the truth. On the other hand, it prevents the white person who accepts this Marxist notion that he's cursed with white privilege It prevents him from ever being justified. He must live in a state of perpetual guilt because of something over which he has no control. He cannot check his privilege enough. He cannot repent enough. He cannot make amends for his privilege. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And to suggest that someone should feel shame and condemned because of something other than their real sin is to undermine the very teaching of this gospel. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. No matter what anyone might say about you and how you need to reorder your thinking according to the ideology du jour. This ideology also separates black people from the gospel, puts up obstacles between them. It encourages blacks to see themselves primarily as victims whose identity is determined by those more privileged than they are. This sends a false message that no matter what they do, they cannot overcome the unearned privilege 
of those who are white. Such an attitude is bigoted. It is disrespectful. And it's rooted in unbelief. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. No person should be made to feel that he or she is inevitably underprivileged in the kingdom of God because of skin color. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Rather, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, where this theological reality is ignored or where it is violated due to prejudice or bigotry or any other reason, brothers and sisters, let's declare war on it and fight against it. But let's do so on the basis of God's word and what it teaches, not on the basis of some imported Marxist philosophy. Any teaching that encourages people to think of themselves primarily as being victimized whether on the basis of race or anything else, is contrary to the ways of Christ. Our Lord suffered the greatest injustice in history. Yet never once did he describe himself as a victim. In fact, in the very event that was the greatest injustice in the history of the world, an injustice that resulted in the execution of the only righteous man who's ever lived in this world, Jesus was doing his greatest work of conquering sin and death and hell for all who trust in him. Anything that encourages his followers to see themselves and their own victimization as the key ingredient in their identity cannot be from Christ. What does Scripture say to us? about how we should think about inequities, privileges that are different from people to people. Well, Scripture calls us to accept responsibility for our own lives, no matter how privileged or underprivileged we might be. In the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus makes this point by giving three servants unequal amounts of money. We might say, unequal privilege. And yet he expected each one of them to exercise wise stewardship over what they had been given, not over what they did not possess. And so the one who had five talents went and got five more, and he was commended by the master. Well done. He was rewarded for his stewardship. He was rewarded in the exact same way that the man with two talents was rewarded. Though he didn't have five, he did what he could have done and should have done with two. And he received the exact same commendation. The only one of the servants that was judged amiss, the only one that was rebuked and condemned, is the one who took what he had and buried it because he was afraid. The Bible teaches us to think about our lives as stewards with what we have been given, not what we have not been given. It teaches us to see all of life as grace, to recognize that we stand before God as his image bearers and we're accountable to him. He does that for us and holds us accountable whether he puts one, two, or five talents in our hands. We must recognize whatever you have, it's more than you deserve. And we must make the most of what we have been entrusted with. That is, whatever my gifts 
and opportunities, whatever privileges God gives me are to be used to his honor and glory and to the welfare and good of others. I'm not to covet those who have more than I have, nor disdain those who have less than I have. Rather, I am commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And any ideology that discourages me from doing either of those is contrary to the ways of Jesus Christ and it must be rejected. Any ideology that inflames covetousness within my heart is contrary to Christ. The rhetorical question Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 should shape the way that we see ourselves and others. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? If God has blessed you with wealth or intelligence or opportunities or privileges that others don't have, recognize that's come from God. And you're a steward of that. And if you look at others that see and see they have far more than what you will ever be able to have in this life, rejoice with them. If they're your brother and sister, commend them to use what God has given them for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom. And you do the same. In talking about this subject, I know it is sensitive. And I know that there are good people that disagree with the points that I've tried to marshal forth this afternoon. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that everyone who uses the language of white privilege is consciously grooving on cultural Marxism. But what I am saying is that this is dangerous. And it is indeed often disastrous when followers of Christ employ concepts that have been spawned by the vain philosophies of this world. Paul warns us of this very thing in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It is a sad but undeniable truth that the sin of racism remains in our country and too often in our churches. And none of us should be tolerant of that. But brothers and sisters, as we must do with all sin, where we find it, let's attack it with the gospel of Jesus Christ as that is given to us in the word of God. Let's take the scriptures and use the scriptures to determine what is right, what is wrong, what ought to be, what ought not to be. To teach what real repentance is and when it is called for and what real forgiveness is and when it is called for. I want to appeal to my brothers and sisters who are tempted, tempted to buy into this ideology of white privilege and the cultural Marxism that has spawned it. And they've done so, I know, from good motives in an attempt to promote racial reconciliation. But my appeal is this. Please back up and reconsider the tools that you are employing and the source from which they have come. David would never have been able to defeat Goliath 
had he employed Saul's armor, as enticing and attractive as it looked. And neither will we be able to fight effectively the racial sin that remains among us by relying on carnal weapons instead of the sword of the Spirit. God has placed that sword in our hands. He has called us to wield it effectively. And he has done so so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's take God at his word and use that word as we contend for what is right and good and true and just in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.